Open your Bibles again this morning to the book of First Peter. It's always good to be back. Well, we'll leave that where it is then today. It's always good to be back into a systematic study as we work our way through this great epistle. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help this morning before we begin. Father, again, help us. We need our ears to be opened by your spirit. We need our flesh to be subdued. We need the mind of God to be communicated to us clearly. And we know, Father, that we are powerless to conjure that up and to accomplish that on our own. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would open deaf ears and open blind eyes to see and to hear wonderful things from your word, which we would not know otherwise. And that you would conform us by those words and by your gracious work in us to the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose coming we long for whose presence we long to be in. But until then, Lord Jesus, make us like you. Cause us to be less like the world around us. More prepared and fit for heaven. Because we have been like you. By your gracious work. Do it now, we pray, through the medium of your word with all of its power to pierce to places in our heart, in our mind, that we were unaware even existed. Let its power be felt in every facet of our thinking and of our lives. For your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in chapter 2 now, this morning, beginning, and let me read The first three verses for us this morning is that will be our consideration for this Lord's Day. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. All of us in our life as we have approached problem-solving moments have heard these words. Maybe it was your father or your grandfather. Maybe it was a boss whom you worked for. And as you come to the moment when there is the inevitable fork in the road and they say something to you like this. Now there is a right way And a wrong way to do this. The Christian life is really no different. We're presented over and over again the opportunity to look at the Scriptures and to say, now there is a right way and there is a wrong way to live this out. There's a right way to live our lives in Christ. and There is a wrong way to live our lives as professing believers. As professing believers, Peter transitions from really what is one long opening statement in chapter 1 
He transitions from that, the work of God in Christ for us, bringing us into His glorious salvation, with this simple recipe in these three short verses of the right way now to live the Christian life. Having laid a doctrinal foundation, much like Paul does, he now transitions into saying to us, as it were, now there is a wrong way and there is a right way to live your life now that you are in Christ. And here is the right way. If you want to think of it, perhaps you have memorized these passages and you are familiar with them, but if you want to think about this in the words of the Apostle Paul, it would be, those famous words in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, put off and put on. Put off and put on. This is the way that a Christian lives their life now in Christ. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we get that flavor of Put off the old man, put on the new man. And as Terry read for us just a few minutes ago, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter builds upon this principle in his second letter to this same group of people. That put on principle that we see in 2 Peter chapter 1, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge. All of these things, Peter is elaborating on that put on phase that he begins here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. In the previous message, and, and it will take you some effort to remember that as we've all slept and eaten way too much sugar between that time and today, but if you will. Try and remember with me in the previous passage that we looked at as we concluded 1 Peter chapter 1, we looked at the absolute countercultural act of loving one another. Absolutely countercultural. Completely foreign to the culture of Peter's day and completely foreign to the culture of our day. And something that can only be brought about by the work of Christ in us that is so clearly elaborated, especially towards the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1. It's antithetical, it's completely opposite to the depravity of this world to love one another. It it makes no sense to the world. The world is completely self-absorbed. And so were we, by the way, until we came to Christ. We are self-absorbed people. We are only looking out for what is in our own desire and interest. And it is not until the Lord Jesus Christ changes our heart that that is even possible that we could love one another. And so Peter concludes chapter 1 with that antithetical statement to the world and you remember jesus in john chapter 16 and verse 2 talks about the perversion of the world's idea of love he says in john chapter 16 verse 2 they will make you outcasts from the synagogue these are religious people these are spiritual people and notice what they're doing they are throwing out the christian from the synagogue he says but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you not only throws you out but kills you will think that he is offering service to god that that is an absolute perversion of love 
It is an absolute distortion of reality, and Jesus warns against that. Peter warns against that and calls you and I, as he calls this group of believers, to be radically different in our beliefs and in our lives. I want you to notice in the text this morning the genuine markers of faith. If faith is true, if we have tasted the kindness of the Lord, if we know the salvation that is in Jesus Christ, according to verse 3, if that is true of us, then the other things that precede that in verses 1 and 2 are expected. These are presumptive states, and what are they? That you will have put off all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. First of all, that's the put off. And then the put on, you will then long for, have a driving, insatiable desire for that which is pure from the Word of God. And so if we have tasted the goodness of the Lord, if chapter 1 is true of us, and I pray that it is, if we have trusted Christ, then these things are the expected, presumptive responses of every believer. And I want to look at those two responses this morning as I laid out earlier. Response number one of putting off, and secondly, a response of putting on. As Peter opens the summary of his introductory material in chapter 1, he does so with a conclusion. And what stands out in his conclusion is the imperative force of his words. And we are in that conclusion this morning, all of chapter 1 being true. You who claim to have believed it, here is the imperative force. Now, these are not necessarily, there's actually in all of these which this is one long sentence. He, Peter may have had a hard time in grammar if he went to the school you did. This is one long sentence and there was only one verb in the entire sentence. And yet everything that Peter says has the force of an imperative command like a drill sergeant. It carries that sort of weight along with it. These are not mere observations about the Christian life. They're not suggestions about the Christian life. These are non-negotiable realities that will be true and are presumed again to be present in us if we have tasted the goodness of the Lord. They ought to be in part the objects of our prayer life. We ought to pray that the first part of the sermon this morning would never be true of us and we ought to pray that the second part would always be true of us. I'm reminded of the Puritans and and by the way, if you don't read Puritan prayers, you really ought to. You can read the Valley of Vision, which is a, an older classic, and that there is there are newer works in which the catalogs of they have cataloged the prayers of the Puritans from their sermons and writings and so forth. And one of the things that will strike you in reading the prayers of these godly forerunners of our faith is that they often prayed that God would never allow them to find in their life these vices mentioned, first of all, in this response of putting off. They prayed for a keen awareness that the Lord would reveal sin to them and that they would learn to hate their sin wherever it was found. And 
Christian brothers and sisters, that ought to be our prayer in 2021. What's your New Year's resolution? My New Year's resolution is to hunt down sin in my life, wherever it may be, and to fight it with the power of God. The power of the Gospel. The power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the tool of the Word of God. That we would root out sin wherever it would be. Because if I have tasted, Lord, if I have tasted Your goodness, and if I am Your child, reveal sin wherever it may lie to me and give me a great hatred for it and a great passion to pursue its extinction. That ought to be our prayer as we begin this new year. Notice what Peter said, therefore having if you were to translate this literally, therefore, having put aside, we, you've already done this if you have tasted the goodness of the Lord. And since you have done that, I presume you've done that. And before you can desire the milk of the word long for, which is the only verb in this entire passage, let's talk about what has to be put out of the way first. This is to do with rejection. One commentator says that this deals with any sort of rejection. The word could be used for any type of rejection, but it is especially connected so deeply with rejection that it involves the rejection of a part of the body or of the mind, whether clothing or hair or anything like that. It, it is a cutting out of that which is deeply part of something. I want you to notice that in the context of everything that Peter has said already about being countercultural to our flesh and the world. What is natural to the flesh? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. That is an is innate to us as our own hair, as the limbs that God has created upon us, as the very skin cells that pervade our body. This is as natural to the natural fallen state of man as our own physical attributes are to the physical man. And so Peter says, listen, having tasted the goodness of the Lord, it requires a deep work and it is a transforming work in the most fundamental and most basic areas of your life. We live and are born with that fallenness of human heart that is so deep, so deep, that we must go that deep in order to remedy it. I want you to notice the things that Peter begins to elaborate for us, that we as Christians must guard against. Now, before I do that, let me say this. As Peter talks about doing these things, and especially as he gets into the putting on segment of his writing this morning, some have taken uh, these ideas to be Christian pacifism, and they are not. Uh, Peter, Peter is not calling in, uh, us to just with, disengage from the world and to withdraw from the world and to just live this kind of mystic life where all we do is you know, kind of like the, the pictures of angels floating around on clouds, strumming harps, and you're really of no earthly good, and you don't really pursue anything with vigor. That's not Peter's standpoint at all. 
In fact, we are in a war. We're in a war with our own fallen heart and we must fight it that way. We are at war with a world who hates God and we must prosecute a spiritual battle in that way. I'm not talking about physical bloodshed, but we must attack the the, the satanic lies of the world around us with the truth of the Word of God, and we must not be ashamed to do that. And so Peter's not calling upon us to become pacifist and just to disengage completely, which some have seen him as doing, as being soft on sin. No, Peter is actually very hard on sin. We need to be bold. We must be clear. We must be strong in our approach to sin as Peter spells it out here in this putting off section. And so as we observe the text this morning, notice that Peter warns and commands against sinful behaviors and patterns of life. Peter David says it this way, since God has reached out and affected our regeneration and it is an enduring act of His, that we are always regenerate by the power of God. We should live accordingly rather than returning to wallow in corruptible life. We must adapt a warrior's mentality to deal with these things. It's not an inactive life. It is not a passive life of compromise and weakness. It's rather a life that rejects the fallen and sinful responses that come naturally to us to battle that wherever it is. It is always right to battle wrong. Always. And it is always right to do what is right. Always. Both in our responses and in our contending for that. It is always right to respond rightly. It is always right to battle for right. But only to do it in the right ways. That's what Peter is calling us to. Not only the object and the objective that we are pursuing but the way in which we pursue that objective as well and it is spiritual surgery that is needed remember i said that the 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 language that peter has chosen under inspiration of the holy spirit to use here is language of a deep cutting of amputation of that which is most close to us cutting that out in its entirety and you'll remember this language is not as strange as it may sound Jesus himself uses that language, doesn't he? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, Jesus says, If your right eye offends you, do what? Pluck it out. If your right arm offends you, cut it off. For it's better for your whole body than to be thrown into hell. These are Christian imperatives to war against our own flesh. To war with truth. And with the purity of God against a value system that has fallen and is influenced by Satan. There's no excuse. There's no excuse for internal sin among Christians. Simply because of external pressure from the world. We must push back against that and fight against that. Not only in our own flesh, but by what is pushed upon us. No, remember the context of the entire letter of the book of 1 Peter is relationship of Christian to Christian. This is not a letter primarily written to the world. And, and again, context, context, context is so important in our reading of the Bible. This is a letter to Christians. So if you try to read this as a letter to unbelievers, it won't make a whole lot of sense. And so we read it in that context that 
that we as Christians are the ones being addressed here in our relationship to other Christians, and ultimately how that affects us, the world is, becomes clear as well. But in a sense, Peter is calling Christians to own up to and be responsible for their lives in relationship to the lives of other Christians as well. Now as we get into the list, I want you to notice something unique to this text. Notice how Peter uses the descriptor all. All malice. All deceit. All slander. Not to go too nerdy on you or to make you think that you got up this morning and showed up at the wrong place and ended up in a seminary building somewhere. The New Testament writers had a unique experience and they could use the word all to signify different things. You could say all and use one Greek word and mean all of one group. Or you could say all and mean all of every group. There were different ways of expressing this. And the way that Peter is expressing this here in this passage is simply this. To say all of every kind, of every jot and tittle, of every imaginable sort of these things. So however malice might show up, kill it. However envy might show up, deal with it. Any kind, every kind, expansive in his thoughts here. So it's an adjective and used to talk about the totality of sin and how it ought not to be true and is not presumed to be true in a habitual way in the life of a believer. And wherever it is, is to be put off. It begins with malice. The word malice is a general sense. It's a catch-all term. It's the big idea that generally means, if you were to look it up in a dictionary, would just simply say wickedness or evil in general. It's a state of baseness or depravity of vice. One commentator says that it is simply this, the overarching foundational problem of a force that destroys fellowship. It's anything that could come into a group of believers and manifest itself in destruction of their fellowship. Brothers and sisters, that could be many things. It could be envy. It could be slander. It could be uh, hypocrisy. It could be any number of things. And Peter starts by saying, let me just say that in case I miss the boat on naming your sin specifically, let's just throw it all in one big basket and say all sin. Okay? Yeah. And that's the problem. Some people say, you know, well, you you ought to name specific sins when you preach. And sometimes that's appropriate. But the problem is you inevitably leave out some sin. And somebody leaves feeling justified because he didn't talk about my sin today. Well, Peter solves that for all of us. And he says, it's anything that detracts from the glory of God. Anything that is wicked or depraved. It's the root of all other evils. And as such, is not expected to be found anywhere within a Christian's life or within a Christian community. It's interesting to note that in several places, the earnestness of the New Testament writers to deal with this. The New Testament writers were so eager to 
see the power of the gospel flourish in people and to see its full effect take root in their lives. They often begin with personal exhortation and admonishment for individuals. They say, look, here's how it has to, this is what a life changed by Christ looks like, and this is what repentance looks like, and this is what the power of the gospel does, and, and these things must be repented of. And where they are not repented of, and where there is habitual hanging on to them, there must needs be an address given by the church community as a whole in the exercise of discipline against that sin. And against the sin of non-repentance for it. You must cut that cancer out of the body. Romans chapter 16 verse 17. Paul in concluding his letter says this. Now I urge you brethren. Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. And turn away from them. Cut that out. That's how serious Things like Peter is mentioning are Titus 3 verse 10. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, which is consistent with Matthew chapter 18. Malicious behavior in any form within the church is like a fast metastasizing cancer. It will soon choke out and kill what life remains. And So Peter, as well as other New Testament writers, say you've got to deal with this seriously you deal with it in your own life you take care of it you go enlist others to help you deal with it because if you don't at some level the church will have to become involved and it will not go well with you if you refuse to deal with these things and so malice is that overarching idea and then he combines the next two ideas of deceit and hypocrisy the second thing to be rejected is the poison of living a lie. The poison of living a lie. And we've been hit and rocked within the Christian community yet again in the past week. And you will be more and more in the, in the month to come as reports of major ministries and influential people who have lived a lie and covered it up for far too long when it should have been rooted out and cut out and dealt with individually and then corporately by those around him, and they did not. It does great damage to the body of Christ when lies are allowed to be perpetrated and continued to be lived. This begins with deceit. That is essentially to live by trickery or cunning or treachery, the word means. The word literally means to take advantage of through craftiness, to, to manipulate someone, to, to navigate by cunning and deceit. It's anything less, one commentator says, than speaking the full and honest truth from the heart. You know you can lie in more than one way? You can lie by what you say, but you can also lie by what you don't say. There's an appropriate time to speak up, and if you don't speak up, it conveys a wrong message. And in that wrong message, you have led someone astray. You have deceived. Another dictionary defines it as meaning to catch with bait. You set the bait out, and you bait someone in, into your web of lies and deceit. And this, Peter says, must be cut out. 
You know, brothers and sisters, under pressure, such temptations arise, don't they? There's, there, there is a temptation to be deceitful when the pressure is on. And it, it, for all of you who are parents, you know this. Your child can get very creative with storytelling if they think they're going to be in trouble for something they did. They can, they can, they can uh, plead the fifth in such a way that it deceives you. They can outright tell you lies. But where the pressure of facing retribution for wrong done, when pressure comes, there's a temptation to lie. There's a temptation to deceit. And remember that the people that Peter is writing to are people under pressure. Christian, we are living in a day and we are living in an age where we will face increasing pressure. But that is no excuse to be deceitful, to lead astray, especially among each other, to manipulate certain things to our advantage, to make things seem like what they are not. This goes not only for our direct interaction, this goes for what is posted upon social media. I think we're going to have to revise the old saying. In counseling, you know, there's person number one story, person number two story, and then there's the truth, and now we have to say, and there's social media story. It's a place, it's a platform where we can deceive others into thinking something about us that isn't true. It's very easy to do. There's no accountability to garner an advantage through doing that. Peter uses this term of deceit three times in this one letter. Paul likewise uses the term, excuse me, in that same passage with putting off and putting on in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, where he says this, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Communicate all of truth with your neighbor, for we are members of one another. Don't harm one another by deceit. Live honestly with one another. Jesus often warned against hypocrisy in the Gospels, didn't He? One of the chief charges against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes was that they were hypocrites. They were masters of deceit. What follows deceit is often envy because of the lie. I'm sorry, uh, hypocrisy and deceit going hand in hand. And then comes envy. Envy. Why would someone feel compelled to act in an underhanded way in order to achieve what he wants? The answer is envy. Deceit and hypocrisy create an environment in which envy then flourishes. I see this going on or I see that and boy, I desire to have that Uh, comfort or that luxury or whatever it might be and so i will act upon that and create an envious heart envy brothers and sisters is so often at the heart of so many issues within the christian church you understand that envy is often at the root of so many problems within the christian church After pastoring for 18 years, 
I can tell you that looking back in every, almost every counseling case, almost every uh, difficulty that we have gone through as a church with, uh, with sin being unchecked or with individuals uh, causing difficulty and harm, almost every time envy is in the mix. Almost without exception. They see something they want. They create a, a hypocritical life, a deceitful life. And in, in that, envy grows. And then that envy, all the other things, slander and gossip and harmful behavior towards others, it ends up spilling out. So it's no wonder that Peter says, under pressure, under pressure here, envy is another thing that you must guard against. Envy is certainly a problem in the world, isn't it? You realize that if we could eliminate envy, so much of, of the turmoil we have seen in our world, in our country, in our culture over the last year would not happen. Class warfare could not exist. Hatred of one group against the other because some other group supposedly has an event, that couldn't last. If envy was dealt with, all of that would go away. And so there is a, a vested interest in the sin of envy. In people, and, and Peter is warning that that not be part of the Christian church or the Christian experience. Envy is a terrible thing. It will destroy relationships. Why do people do some of the bizarre things that they do? Because they envy what other people have, either in their position, in their giftedness, in their possessions, or their power. I want that. I want that to be me, and I don't like it that they have it, and I don't, which is to reject the sovereignty of God. God didn't want me to be that. God didn't want me to have those gifts, and God didn't want to use me in that way. Okay, Lord, thank you. Instead of giving thanks, people become envious. If you want to sow the seeds of destruction, allow envy to enter into your family, or your church, or your business, or your nation. Peter warns against that. He says this is not consistent with someone changed by the power of the gospel. Instead, what's the solution? Paul offers that solution in Philippians chapter 2, in the first four verses. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation, what do we need consolation for? For difficult times, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, we could say envy, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. You want to solve 99.9% of all marital disputes? Consider your spouse more important than yourself. You, you want to eliminate uh, rivalry in the workplace? Consider one another more important than yourself. You want to do away with church divisions that can come? Consider one another to be more important than yourself. Paul says... Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Serve them by regarding them how Christ regarded them, which, by the way, comes further along in that same chapter. How did Christ regard us? 
Christ regarded our salvation so important that he laid aside the things he was entitled to to come as a slave and die. Paul says, no, if Christ can do that, can't you serve one another? If Christ could consider you of that level of importance, can't you consider one another's needs as that important? Can't you die to yourself and live for them? Following on the heels of envy, Paul says, or Peter says, you've got to fight against slander, all slander. Following on the heels of envy is the monster of slander. Deceit is what one practices to one's face. Slander is what one practices when the back is turned. And Peter says it must all be cut out. Slander can take many forms and attempt to discredit someone's character, creating doubt about them in open-ended statements and inferences. Prayer requests. Outright lies, capitalizing on a weakness of someone else without patience and forbearance towards them and consideration of the entire story, why they, they might be in the predicament they're in rather than to rushing to judgment, to be patient with them and see how you might serve them and love them. Brothers and sisters, we, we need to reject such things. We need to fight against such things. These should never be present in those if you have tasted, he says in verse 3, of the goodness of the Lord. Wherever they are, we must with greatest passion and fervency cut them off and cut them out. Now we move into the putting on. Where these things are found, Peter offers a remedy. The believer is not merely encouraged to improve your morals, to to self Uh, renovate and self-reform and and be more self-disciplined or improve yourself, he instead commands them outrightly to pursue something completely different than them. The answer is not found in you to fight these things. And that's the good news. Who among us is strong enough to fight malice on our own? Don't raise your hand. Who among you is strong enough to fight envy? You know how quickly envy sprouts up. Oh, well, I, well, what about me? Why didn't I get the phone call? Why didn't I get the, the raise? Why didn't I get this? Why didn't I get the, it? It happens so easily, doesn't it? And we all know how powerless we are to fight that thing at certain times. You know, oh, that's no big deal for me. But the, over here, this is your weak spot. We're all powerless to fight those things. And so God in His grace has given us a way to fight those that is effective. And it sounds like this, like newborn babies. Long for the pure milk of the Word so that you may grow in respect to salvation by it. The people of God, listen, Christian, we're going into a new year. We're going to face new challenges. We're going to face new pressures. But we don't say that as people who are afraid and cowering in fear and, oh no, what are we going to do? Because God never leaves His people without the resources they need to fight that. And so we can stand here with hope and say, God, how great will your mercy be shown. Yes, the temptation to sin will be there, but your faithfulness will be more there. It will be more present. It will be more sufficient than sin. 
What God commands to be vacated, God always fills. And He fills it with this precious response of putting on in verse 2. Not only does He fill, but He fills with things that are consistent with His own glorious nature, consistent with our good, consistent with our growing in faith. And I want you to notice something. Somebody, well, that sounds awfully legalistic. I'm talking about this putting off everything. What, I, what Peter tells us to put off are the precursors to death. What he tells us to put on is the precursor to life. Now, if you want to call that legalistic, go ahead. But what he is doing is making room for the grace of God to come and to demonstrate its power by cutting off these things and filling with something so much better. Put off the precursors to spiritual death. The death of your family, the death of your church, the death of your friendships, the death of nations, the death of cultures that if not repented of, you know rigor mortis is soon to set in. Not because they lose their salvation, but because they refuse to repent. They are demonstrating that they never possessed the life of God elaborated on in chapter 1. Now we expect that they have that. But if they continue on in this, they will die. But if they forsake it, they will live. The gospel will have been proven to have indeed accomplished that change. Again, not to the point of perfection. We're not Wesleyan here. We don't believe that anybody's ever going to be perfect, but we ought to be growing in our battle against these things. Winning battles, seeing God win them in and through us. We've been birthed by the grace of God in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Let's just go back there. Just look across the page. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living Hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How were you born? By the mercy and grace of God. How were you born physically? By the choice of your parents and the help of a doctor. Not anything you've done. And so that is true. We have been birthed of the grace of God and being birthed In the grace of God, we are dependent upon God for all of our life. For all time. We are forever dependent on all that God has provided for us. And I want you to notice something. In verse 2, there is no indication of the age of these believers in spiritual terms. I've heard people try to say, well, this is written for new Christians. There's no indication this is for new Christians. This is every bit indicated that it is for All Christians at every stage of their life from birth onward. There is never a point in which we are said, "Okay, you don't have to long for the pure milk of the word anymore. You're good. You've reached level a. 
You're top tier. You don't need this anymore. Fill in your favorite preacher, the most mature Christian you know. They are not immune from the putting on Peter speaks of in verse 2. Every bit for the newest believer as well as the oldest believer. And what is true is this, is that for all of our lives, we remain dependent on God like newborn babies. That's the point. For all of your life, you will be dependent on God like a newborn is dependent upon their mother. How soon is a newborn dependent upon the nourishment that can be provided by a mother? Instantly. How soon do newborns want to eat? Almost immediately. And you can't just, you know, give them anything. They need that which is nourishing, that which is pure. And God has even designed biologically the human body to be able to provide certain types of nutrients first. And for those of you moms who've given birth, you know what that is. And these these infants need to eat and they need to eat. And it comes in certain orders in the feeding of that child. But they're immediately dependent. You can't just give them anything. I'll wrap my parents out since they're sitting right here. Don't do what they did. I was older. We have pictures, believe it or not, of a Dr. Pepper bottle with a nipple on it. And if you wonder what's wrong with me, that's it. If you wonder why I like sugar, that's it. Right, But you wouldn't do that to a newborn. And you might do it when they're two or three for fun. But you don't do that to a newborn. You give them what they need. And Peter says, this is what you've got to realize. No matter where you are in your spiritual growth, you are still but a newborn baby who needs instant nourishment, who needs the right kind of nourishment. And that can only come from one place. And that's a humility, brothers and sisters, we all need to be reminded of. We have got to maintain that humble status before the Lord that we, we are not arrived. We will never arrive. We are always dependent babies. There are no mature Christians in the sense that they are free from being fed from God Himself. None at all. In fact, one of my favorite hymns, I love to tell the story. For those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting To hear it like the rest. The oldest saints are often the most hungry saints. Because they understand how dependent upon the word of the Lord that they are. This is how we conquer. This is how we fight the old man. We're learning this this past year, right? With this virus that is going around. What are we learning We're learning that by and large, if you will provide your body the right types of nourishment before it strikes, you will be able to fight it after it strikes. If you'll take care of yourself, if you'll nourish yourself, if you'll get off the sugary stuff and take the right supplements and eat healthy and get rest and exercise and all of that, your body has a pretty, it's a pretty amazing machine. Certainly that's not foolproof. And you can't make that a hard and fast rule. But but if you nourish yourself, it will help to destroy 
the viruses that attack your body, just as in our spiritual life, as we nourish ourselves on what is good, it will help us in fighting off that which is harmful. Now, I want you to notice something interesting here. When Peter writes, he says, like newborn babies long for desire. It is a craving. Like Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. That they will be satisfied in the most bizarre way because the more they eat, the more they want to eat. The more they drink, the deeper they want to drink. But they are filled. They find the nourishment they need. It is the same principle here. Longing for it, but what are you to long for? Notice how Peter describes it. And we read this and we say, oh, this is wonderful. It is pure milk of the word. It, it's, it's, you know, uh, I don't know, organic, non-GMO sustainably sourced, whatever. Oh, that, that must be what the word pure means. How, how wonderful. It's actually not. The word pure is actually the word for deceit. Written with the alpha privative. You know, the A that negates the word in front, if you've forgotten your grammar. It is literally to, to desire the undeceitful, non-deceitful milk of the Word. In contrast to what your flesh wants, and in contrast to what the world is offering you, desire that non-deceiving milk of the Word. That which will not lead you astray. During the coming year when sin, especially sin in these areas, comes to tempt you, Ask yourself the question, if I give in to this temptation to think this way or to feel this way, where does that lead me in six months, 12 months, five years, 10 years? Where does this sin ultimately take me? Because it's certainly not going to take me to a place of growth. Therefore, desire that which is non-deceitful milk. That comes from the Word, which comes from God Himself, as Terry read in Second Peter chapter 1, towards the end of that chapter, that it is the Holy Spirit who spoke and moved men of old to write. It is God Himself giving of Himself to us. You are what you eat, brothers and sisters. Don't eat that which is deceitful. What are you today? If you're not what you desire or what Scripture commands you to be, just step back for a moment and look at what you consume. Look at what you consume. I have a really good illustration for this, and you parents know it well. You know, it's amazing that children, at a certain age, their wanter develops, and they want everything. But if you notice how much worse that gets when the magazines come in the mail and when the commercials pop up on TV... They don't know they even want, they don't even know this stuff exists. They don't even know to want it. But they are trained to want it. Marketing people are geniuses. You know, when you're going down the aisle at the grocery store and you all of a sudden dead end into an end cap, that's not because some bozo couldn't read the blueprint as to where to put the shelves. That's intentional. They're going to throw something in your face that you didn't know you needed. Until you saw it. Well, I'll just pick this up. And as men, we're the worst. The, your wife sends you to the grocery store with a list. I always come home with at least double the list. And Nicole says, I'm not sending you to the store anymore. 
You buy way more than I told you to buy. Why? The marketers got me. Right? Look at what you consume, Christian. Look at what fuels you. You know, we could probably fight our envy, could fight our malice, could fight this, all those sorts of things if we would guard our heart by what we feed it. You may find that Christ has been replaced by something else. That's what really makes me happy. That's where my real, oh man, if I could just go there, have this, do this, be this, then I would be, mm, yeah. But that's not the milk of Christ. That's not the milk of the gospel that nourishes you. That's not the word of God that it really satisfies you. If Christ has been replaced by something else, then brothers and sisters, let's just be honest. At the beginning of a new year, our actions are tied more to this world than they are in preparing for the world to come. And Peter says that's got to be put off and you've got to put on the non-deceitful milk of the word. Milk has always been a metaphor throughout Scripture. Remember in Exodus chapter 3, God is preparing Israel for their departure. And he says, I'm going to take you out of the land of Egypt into a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. Man, you're going to be nourished there. You're not going to have this stubble to eat, this hard tack bread in Egypt. You're going to have milk and honey. Nourishment for you. And it is spiritual in nature. The, the word word here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 is also translated as spiritual in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when Paul talks about us being conformed to the image of Christ as an act of spiritual service and worship. It refers back to chapter 1, verse 25. Look back at that verse, but the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which was preached to you. This is the pure word. What word? The word that God in His grace and mercy chose us and through Christ saved us out of this world. It is a word that is alive. It is active. Salvation is not static. It is active. Brothers and sisters, your salvation is active. It, it wasn't sitting there waiting on your self-conceived faith to enable it to act. No, it is active seeking us out. It transforms us. It redeems us. And there is no end to the transformation of it. Notice what Peter says, so that you may grow in respect to salvation. You just keep growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. There's no end. Can I say it this way? In the physical realm, we never stop growing. That's not true. You may say, I'm at the age where I have not only quit growing, I have started to shrink. But you know what? That's not true. You're always growing. You always have to be replenishing your skin cells. Your heart has to constantly be replenishing cells and creating new pathways. Your brain is constantly creating new neuropathways to transmit signals for as you learn. You don't ever stop growing. You may not get any taller. You may not develop more muscle mass at a certain point in your life. But as long as you are alive, your body is still growing. It's the same spiritually. We don't stop growing until we are 
completely made perfect with Jesus in heaven. There's no end. There's no indication that Peter has an objective point in which the growth stops here. He says, desire the undeceitful, pure milk of the word so that you may grow and continue to grow in respect to your salvation. As your salvation works itself out, you will never stop growing. You know who says amen to that for one? Me. Because I know how much I need to grow. I have an acute awareness of how weak I am. But I want to grow. And God has provided that in the nourishment of the word. Peter abruptly switches metaphors. He's been talking about milk and now he's talking about the final day of salvation. That day is coming. and What a day that will be. May, may we never, any of us, be here upon planet earth to see 2022 rung in. Oh, that the Lord would return in 2021. What a, what a glorious coming that would be. And we are to grow until that day, Peter says. This is what you have, and it's sufficient all the way to the end. You have a gift, you have nourishment received from birth until Jesus either takes you or comes for you. Nourishment of God's word is our ongoing spiritual preparation for for that day when we see him face to face. You realize how kind God is to us? I'm so glad that as soon as we're saved, so I've heard people say, and you have too, man, I wish the Lord would have just have taken me to heaven as soon as he saved me. No, I'm glad he didn't. Because every trial, every spurt of growth that we have in this life prepares us for heaven. So the Lord is leaving you here longer to prepare you more for His presence. To refine you, to to tune your worship, to sing His praise, which you'll be doing for all eternity. This is just the the grooming school for that. We're being prepared for that. His, His Word is nourishing us for that. So that heaven is not a shock. We've been prepared for it. Preparing for that day. We have no time then, brothers and sisters. That day is coming. That day may come for some of us if Jesus doesn't return. That day may come for us this year. We don't know the appointed hour of our death. The Lord does. We don't concern ourselves with it, but it may come this year. And so, that being the case, we have no time. We have no room for spiritually deficient nutrients. We have no time to waste by playing with the fire of malice and envy and hypocrisy and deceit and slander. Oh, if we've tasted the goodness of the Lord, put that off and put on the sincere milk of the Word, the pure milk of the Word. Satan offers counterfeits which are many. Our carnality offers excuses as to why we should buy those counterfeits. Our flesh will tell us any number of reasons why you should give in and fulfill your personal desires. But this much we know, they will never satisfy. Only God satisfies. And what's worse, and we know this to be true, don't we? Satan is the great master 
of tempting, setting the bait, and then switching his tactics. Oh, just give in. It'll be okay. Just give in. Give in. Give in to that malicious thought. Give in to that envious thought. Give in to that uh, opportunity to be deceitful. Give in. It'll feel good to slander. And it's okay. It's not really that bad. And then as soon as you do it, what does he do? I can't believe you would do that. I thought you said you were God's child. I'm surprised God has anything to do with you. He first tempts and then he accuses. Never with God. Never with God. He's a loving Father. And our desires can only be met in Him. Therefore, repent from the things in verse 1. It's not drudgery to do so. Rather, delight in the things of verse 2. Because you've tasted the goodness of the Lord. You don't have to play with the pigs anymore. Perhaps 2020 found you trying to imbibe from sources that have no ability to nourish you. And you enter a new year not excited about the things of God, but weary and tired and doubtful because you were spiritually malnourished in the year before. Well, I have good news. You can repent of those things. You can lay aside those things. You can put off those things. And you can turn to God today and begin nourishing yourself and find Him sweet and willing to aid you in your growth. Perhaps 2020 found you experiencing the goodness of God, well then just continue leaning on Him. Continue drinking. You've not outgrown the milk. Stay after it. Perhaps 2021 finds you still unsure of where you stand with God. There is no better time than today than to trust the living God and His Son. To take Him at His word that He sent His Son to die and He paid your penalty if you will but believe. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you will experience the opportunity to drink this pure milk of the Word. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to Your table as Your children, we ask, O oh God, that You would nourish our minds and our hearts as we consider Christ in all that He has done for us, as we consider the pure and undefiled and undeceitful milk of His Word. Lord Jesus, not only have You accomplished our redemption by Your death, Your burial, and Your resurrection, You continue to give us Your Word that we may hope, that we may grow, that we may be encouraged and rebuked at times when necessary, but, but equipped in every season to grow until You call us home. Lord Jesus, You are so gracious and worthy of our praise. Holy Spirit, thank You that You have made the Word of God alive to us, that we might understand it, that we might be convicted. and We ask that You would Deepen your work of conviction in our souls this year. Reveal where we are playing with the precursors of death and instead feed us from the words of life. As we come to your table, Lord, we pray that we would be aware of sin, aware of the cost of sin, 
and aware of the beauty of the salvation that is offered in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.